Psalm 11. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, and they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot it in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Praise be to the Lord. May he teach us his decrees, and we rejoice in following his statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Amen. Abortion, that nearly a million babies were killed in the year prior to the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. Gender ideology based on fiction and deception. The redefinition of words and the seismic vitriol for those who won't play along. You can imagine my surprise that these were just some of the issues the pastor in Colorado, our family heard last week, brought up in his sermon on truth. There's a lot of sin and unsettling trouble in the world. Today, a woman under 30 is more likely to have a child outside of marriage than within it. Pornography is everywhere and nearly everywhere regarded as acceptable. The most basic building blocks of life, faithful marriages and present parents move from being honored to irrelevant to despised. There's a mental health crisis sweeping the population because of societal responses to COVID, social media and video game addictions, and the hopelessness that attends a life of relentless triviality. It's enough to be overwhelmed, isn't it? And it's not new, nor is the question these times cause us to wonder if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's no specific circumstance in David's life that's given as the setting for Psalm 11. There were many for him, weren't they, when the foundations seemed to be shaking? Remember just a few weeks ago, his son led a rebellion against him, sending him into personal exile. Earlier in his life, King Saul had turned on him and conspired to see him killed. At one point during all that, do you remember the story when David went to the city of Nob? Where Ahimelech, the priest, he helped him. He didn't know any better. He didn't know Saul was against him. And all he did was help David. And when Saul found out, he had Ahimelech and all 85 of the other priests of Nob and all of their families murdered. The king of Israel the leader of God's people, 
murdering the priests of Israel and their families because he was intimidated, threatened in his power by God's anointed one, David. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And there were plenty of times in David's life where fleeing, leaving the place he was physically to get away from those who wanted to harm him was the right thing to do. That's why I agree with those who think that Psalm 11 isn't about physically running away. It's about the temptation to abandon God and his calling for us because of the onslaught of evil. In a just society, the law and the institutions of government feel like the, the backstop and the refuge from chaos. When things are crumbling around us, we turn to the familiar institutions. We turn to family and to our closest relationships for a sense of stability. But what happens when those things are crumbling too? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Feeling that tension, David seeks counsel. He goes to some of his friends, his closest advisors. But what they tell him isn't good. That's why he asks those around them, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? You hear from that that his friends are panicking. They see the adversaries adding up around David. They see the strength and the progress of the enemy. And when the question is, what can the righteous do? Their answer is nothing. It feels impossible. So they tell him to flee. Give up. Get out of here. Run away. It doesn't matter what God has called you to do. Those days are over. That dream is dead. Move out and move on. And notice, David says that he heard their words, not just in his ears, but in his soul. One teacher wrote, those who counseled him to flee addressed his soul and his body, for his heart was deeply pierced by the rejection. Another calls the advice David got the counsel of despair. When the godly are told that they are helpless, it's the counsel of despair. David clearly does not agree. Look how the psalm begins. In the Lord, I take refuge. These foundation-shaking moments are opportunities for our faith to conquer fear. And for David, it does. I read a 19th century preacher once at a sermon he called True Courage, and in it he made the point that for real courage to be displayed, there had to be actual danger present. You don't need courage when there's no danger. Without danger, courage has nothing to do. Now, faith has plenty it can do in the absence of danger, but isn't it true that faith is more visible in different circumstances? When you see someone respond to great trials in their life or to an unsettled future with faith, don't you recognize that? 
Haven't you sometimes even marveled at what you saw when, when a person in, in godly faith presses forward despite significant challenge? Didn't we marvel when David agreed to face Goliath? That too was a choice that required faith that outweighed the counsel of despair. Psalm 11 is interesting because it is a psalm of lament. David is approaching God during difficult circumstances. He's asking God for relief. But within the realm of lament psalms, this one is pretty imbalanced. Normally, a lament will include a line or two about affirmation of trust in God. But here, that's basically the whole psalm. This is the first of a group of psalms of trust where that theme of trust just dominates what David has to say. As an introduction to the Psalter, do you remember how Psalms 1 and 2 ended? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessedness in God, that blessed life that God offers belongs to all who take refuge in him. Here, David is in the midst of difficult circumstances and hopeless counsel. The foundations feel as though they're being destroyed. And where does David begin? In the Lord, I take refuge. The content of the psalm bears out that David means it. He spends more words telling about the Lord than asking for specific relief from his circumstances. Another preacher suggested we should answer the question, what should the righteous do? With to whom can the righteous turn? David's circumstances are overwhelming. He turns to his counselors and he gets counsel of despair. And yet, fully trusting in his God, he answers each in faith. And please notice that this does not require trivializing the threat. Sometimes you'll hear people say, it's not that bad, or this too shall pass. And I hope you all know by now that no good counsel has ever started with the phrase, well, at least it's true that believers get better than they deserve. It's true that this momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. And it's also true that the trials that God sends into our lives and the machinations of the evil one are real and affect us powerfully. They can shake us to our foundations. David writes, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Why would David give up on God's plans for him? Look around. One teacher says in verse two, we read a people, a preparation, an action, and a target, and they're all disheartening. The people are the wicked. Remember how they're plotting and taking counsel together and setting themselves against the Lord and his anointed? Well, here they're coming after David. Later, they'll come after Jesus. And today, they'll come after Jesus' church and his people. They're coming after you. 
The wicked are set against God and his purposes, and they cannot abide anyone who stands with Christ and for Christ and seeks to advance his purposes in the world. The description of them has them readying the bows. They are preparing to fire their deadly arrows. They're plotting. That's almost scarier than the arrows being fired itself, isn't it? I read one observation that there's, there's something sobering about having archers aiming at you. It's utterly terrifying that these archers are, are hidden and you don't know from which direction the arrows will come. And the psalm says the arrows are, are ready in the bow. The string is pulled back, ready to let fly. They can only hold their fire for so long. They're ready to shoot. And that's their action. Their action is to shoot and their target is the upright in heart. Kids, if you determine that your purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, these arrows are pointed at you. There are people who have made their purpose to try and prevent you and punish you for doing what you're called to do. You see it in your schools. You see it in the media. You see it online. The daily choice to walk with Jesus in righteousness is an outrageous offense to those who have set their whole direction against God. And there are times when individually or as groups or a society or government, these wicked people will stop at nothing to try and stop you in your tracks. That's what was happening to David. It's why he felt like the foundations were shaking. He's being harassed by wicked men who want to use all the power they have to stop him from obeying God's purposes. And then foolish men want him to look at how hard it will be. They want him to look and focus on all of the work that it takes to be faithful and say, no, that's just too much to bear. I'll simply give up. The structure of government and society should be helping David pursue his God-given calling. That's what God made these institutions to do, but it's not. The laws, the justice system have turned against him. The shared moral order among the people has disappeared. This is, as one man preached, something much worse than an uphill struggle. It's an utterly impossible task. All around David the king, the moral order of the world is collapsing in chaos and in ruins, and there is, it seems, nothing that he or they can do. When the foundations are shaking, what do you do? I know you felt that way at times. Maybe you feel now that way. Others describe laws that are not upheld, morality that is undermined, evil that sweeps on unchecked. What do we do when the Bible is undermined and its teachings disregarded? What do we do when family values are crumbling? Or what's the point of getting out of bed in the morning if I'm doomed to failure? 
What can you and I possibly do in the work of God's King Jesus that can succeed against this overwhelming stream? What can the righteous do? Luke 13 has one example. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Or another in John 11 that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was and after this said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Jesus goes before us in the experience of difficult circumstances. Jesus goes before us in hearing the counsel of despair. He felt deeply, as deeply as we will ever feel it, that sensation of being surrounded by wickedness of every kind, of looking at the people and the world and the institutions and, and sensing that the foundations could be shaking. And yet Jesus was not moved. God is calling on us that we will love our neighbors. Would you instead flee to the mountains in indifference? God is calling on us that we would make disciples. Would you instead have us flee to the mountains in smug silence? God is calling on us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in this day and age, this time in human history to which he's called us. Brothers and sisters, even when things are dangerous, we cannot flee. Now, maybe you think that what stayed Jesus in those circumstances is something unavailable to us. After all, he's Jesus. But I'd point you back to Psalm 11, where the speaker isn't Jesus, it's David. And facing the same kind of circumstantial difficulties and the same counsel of despair, how does David begin? In the Lord, I take refuge. He's not burying his head in the sand, pretending that everything is okay. This is a lament. He's lamenting the enemies and the ambush and the arrows but when the question is, what can the righteous do? David has an answer. They can go on being righteous. To the question, to whom can the righteous look? He calls us to take refuge in the Lord. 
Jesus was tempted to flee in unbelief. David was tempted to flee in unbelief. Aren't you? But their response to this temptation is not hopelessness or resignation. It's faith. Circumstances told them it was too difficult. Counsel told them it was too difficult. Everything conspired to suggest that they should not believe God was able or willing to protect them. But faith. One of my co-workers is really into sailing as a hobby. He and his family go all kinds of cool places and see amazing things on a sailboat. But I've learned that sailing is a lot of work. The security of all the sails and the ropes and the knots, it all matters a great deal because you want a powerful wind when you're sailing. That's what moves you. But to make that power productive rather than destructive, you've got to have a powerful countervailing force set up in the strength of that sail. Circumstances are powerful. Counsel of despair is powerful. They will tempt you to believe that God is not able or willing to protect you. This is what David was going through, and later Christ as well. Resisting that urge is not easy. It requires a tremendously strong countervailing force. You have to know something that is so sure, so certain, so strong that when those winds blow, it simply powers your sails rather than destroys your foundations. Verse four, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and those who loves violence. There's no human help available for David. The foundations are destroyed. There's no human help available for Christ. And so where do they turn? What, what is the countervailing strength that can withstand such pressure. It's the Lord in his holy temple, the Lord on his throne. Things down here are so unstable. They're ever-changing. They're unsettled. But look up there and you will always see God is steady on his throne. Three things David offers us in the second part of this psalm to help. First, that God reigns. God hasn't gone anywhere. Nothing has gotten away from him. He rules the world he's made from his throne in heaven. And therefore, no matter how things feel, none of the real foundations of this universe have been touched whatsoever. They haven't been shaken. They haven't been removed. And they certainly haven't been destroyed. For David, the line of David was secure. It wasn't going anywhere. For Christ, the victory of Christ over death was certain. All is according to God's plan. You are as safe in your most frightening circumstances as you are sleeping peacefully in your bed. Why? The Lord is on his throne. 
David uses that covenantal name, the Lord, all caps in your Bible, four times in this short section of verses. Christians, your God is with you, not a God, not an abstract God, your God, Yahweh, the God who will be faithful to his covenant, the Lord who will keep his promises. What kept David in such difficult circumstances? What kept Christ despite temptation? The same thing that can keep you. The immovable loving kindness of God. Our God reigns. Second, God sees. It says his eyes see, his eyes test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. The wicked think that they are ambushing you. They're not ambushing God. They think they plot in secret and shadow and that their evil will go unseen until it's too late. Do you agree with them? Do you feel like God isn't seeing what you're going through? That if he did, he'd do something about it? Christians, he is doing something about it. The Lord tests the righteous. That word tests is a kind of examination by fire. It's both refining, burning away that which contaminates, and it's a, it's a proving, a showing and demonstrating that you are pure before the righteous judge in the day of his coming. That same fire is devastating for the wicked, but for the righteous, it's what makes us more and more like Christ. It's what makes us ready to stand before him in judgment and with him in glory, and it's what makes us a useful witness to the world. These trials are a proving ground where we show the world the genuineness of faith. When all other instincts tell us to flee and we stand in genuine faith, that trial has proved us as in Christ and it has shown and proved to the world the power of Christ to save. David tells us that God sees that faith. God sees your faith, Christian. Yes, he sees the dross and the impurity that are being driven from you as he makes you and conforms you to the image of his son. He sees the wickedness that others are doing to you. Our God sees. God reigns, God sees, and third, God promises. David says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. God will make this world right. Justice and morality will be restored for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And faithful believer, this promise is for you. You will see his face. Don't read over that too quickly. Don't dismiss it easily. This is a glorious promise. Do you want to see his face? To stand before him fully accepted as a beloved son or daughter in Christ 
to stand before him and see his face. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. To see God's face was the desire of the Old Testament saints. Moses asked to see God's face. And what he got was a glimpse of God's back. Even in the New Testament. The disciples and the apostles who saw Jesus in the incarnation, they said they longed to see him as he is when he comes in his glory. And you will see that. This is God's promise to you. You will see his face that he will bless you and keep you and he will lift up his countenance upon you. The world will hate you. Your circumstances will conspire against you. The counsel of despair will be all around you. And even so, by faith, you will see the face of God. The trials are real. I read this week that the Lord tries the righteous because they are precious to him. I didn't like that very much, but I think it's true. I know it's true. It's what the scriptures tell us, that we who are refined under the fierce hammer of adversity are precious to God. What can the righteous do? Look to him. Stand firm in the faith. He reigns. He sees. And he's promised, in faith, you will see his face.